Well, good morning, everybody. I am glad you're here. If you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to take it out and find the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter three. Ruth chapter three. We're halfway through our study through the the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Before that, we were going through Esther, and uh, we learned all about the importance of uh, God's providence, his control over all things, his government, his sustaining grace and power in all things. And uh, the book of Ruth is no different. Uh, We get to see just another uh, opportunity, another example, another story of how God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and for the glory that's due his name. Last week, if you were here, Dylan Sanders, one of our interns, did a phenomenal, albeit long-winded job. Uh, He's not in here, but even if he was, I'd still crack that joke at him. Um, uh, introducing you to Boaz, kind of the, the hero, sort of speak, sort of speak in the in the story of Ruth. He wisely pointed past Boaz, though, as Boaz is not the real hero of the story, because the real hero of the story of the book of Ruth is the Lord, whose love and faithfulness and kindness towards his people should point us as Christians directly to the Lord Jesus. Today, we find ourselves at the end of barley season in the book of Ruth. We're in Bethlehem. About six to eight weeks have passed since Ruth chapter two. Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's field and supporting both herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi, who was once filled with bitterness and complained that the Lord had emptied her of all good things because of the sufferings in her life, she, over the last two months, has been filled over and over and over through the kindness of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. So Ruth chapter three is where we're gonna be this morning. And it's an amazing chapter of scripture because in it we have high drama, we have a lot of risk, we have kind of a heartwarming resolution, but still some tension. I mean, it's a story for everybody. There's a lot for us as Christians to see as well. So as we walk through this chapter, I want us to learn not just what's going on in the story of Ruth, but But kind of behind the main points of my sermon this morning, I'm going to give you a couple of facets for what true faith is really like. And I'm I'm getting a lot of these insights. I'll just go ahead and tell you from a guy named Christopher Ashe. He's a preacher and writer in London. And his work on the book of Ruth and the book of Esther has been really, really helpful to me. And so I just want to give credit where credit's due. So if you want to look up more about the book of Ruth and the book of Esther, you should look up Christopher Ashe. He's really, really helpful. So let's dive into our text this morning, and we'll see all that Scripture has for us today. Let's start in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come before you this morning dependent. We are in desperate need of you. Left to ourselves, we know that we will look at this book, we will look at these words, and we will perhaps comprehend what they mean, but we won't understand by the Spirit. And more than mental comprehension, Lord, we want spiritual renewal. We want transformation. We want our hearts to be softened by the power of your word. So God, help us as we study the book of Ruth today, as we look at this story of what it means to have faith. God, I pray that 
each one of us, students and adults, leaders, that we all would come away more in love, more committed to the Lord Jesus than ever before. We ask this in his name. Amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is Faith and Rest. Faith and Rest. And we saw here in verse 1, Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, said, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? If you go back to Ruth chapter 1, when they were deciding in that kind of no man's land, are we going to stay in Moab or are we going to go with Naomi to Bethlehem? Naomi told her two daughters-in-law from Moab, you should go back to your home, back to your mother's house to find rest. I want things to be well with you. I want you to have peace in your life. And so Orpah went back to Moab, back to her family, back to her kinsmen, but Ruth stayed with Naomi. Ruth stayed with the follower of Yahweh. Ruth stayed with the one who was going to Bethlehem. And she said, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. So here in this first aspect of our sermon this morning, I hope you're writing notes, you can take this down. The first point is this. Ruth and Naomi pursue rest. They pursue rest. Uh, When you and I uh, work hard, when we labor and toil, we look forward to rest, right? I was out in my yard all afternoon yesterday, and I was telling my wife, got a shower, got dressed in some really comfortable clothes, and just kind of sat on the couch for a minute. And just sitting on the couch usually just feels good, right? But after you work all day, there's a few things like it. There's that, that that rest from your labor, that rest from your work is a delight. And in a very real sense, that's what Naomi and Ruth are searching for. Naomi and Ruth both in one way or another are searching for rest. So Naomi concocts this plan. She says, here's here's what we're going to do. You're going to go down to the threshing floor. You're going to find Boaz. You're going to wash yourself, anoint yourself with some perfume, put on a cloak so that nobody knows who you are. You're going to go down at night, wait till he goes to sleep, and then you're going to uncover his feet, lie down next to him, and just wait. He'll know what to do. (laughs) And she says, all that you say, I will do. If we read this text quickly, I think if we're not careful... We'll think that Naomi wants Ruth to seduce Boaz and shrewdly and wickedly arrange some sort of forced marriage out of Boaz as the kinsman redeemer will kind of put him between a rock and a hard place and he'll have nothing left to do except to marry you. So let me just clarify, after having read a lot of people interacted with some counsel, I don't think that's what's happening. There is very real risk involved to what Ruth is doing to pursue rest. But the intentions of this plan and the plan itself are not wicked or sinful. Notice the heart behind Naomi's plan in verse 1. She says, Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Naomi wants what's best for her daughter-in-law. She wants her to live a good life, to find purpose other than taking care of her mother-in-law. And so Boaz, the man who's been so kind and gracious to Ruth and to Naomi by extension over the last few weeks, is a relative. She's a kinsman redeemer. She's somebody who, by the law of the land, can marry Ruth and continue the line and legacy of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and Kilion, probably Ruth's husband. So a quick note before we go any further on going to the threshing floor and waiting till he's eaten and drank. 
Uh, what happens at a threshing floor? How are they operated? Well, back in those days, and in rural places today, men would take uh, the, the harvested barley, the, the wheat and the chaff, all of it together. They would take winnowing forks and they would wait until there was a breeze in the air. And then they would take the grain, they would throw it up in the air. The chaff, the shell, the outer part of the, the plant would fly away because of the breeze. But the grain, the thing that we actually need to eat for sustenance, was heavier and it would fall to the ground. So just think all afternoon into the evening, all day, these guys are just taking shovelfuls of wheat and barley and they're throwing it up in the air and they're throwing it up in the air and they're throwing it up in the air. I mean, this is just menial, exhausting labor. It's hard work. And in the days of the judges, we know because of the book of Judges that the the setting that we're in is a wicked, sinful time. And so often... What would happen is after the work was done, when wickedness was rampant in the lives of these men, these worn out workers would eat and drink and carouse and party and go way over the line. They would bring in loose women to have their way with and join them in the partying, which would lead to even greater wicked acts all throughout the night. So here's the plan, Naomi says. Go down to the threshing floor. Anoint yourself. Put on a cloak so that no one knows who you are and wait till Boaz has eaten and drank and goes down to sleep. And when you see him asleep, go next to him, uncover his feet, lie down at his feet and wait until he tells you to do what's next. This is a really, really risky thing to do. Knowing what we know about that culture, knowing what we know about what's going on in the threshing floors among the workers in most places, this is a risky thing to do. But Ruth hears this plan and responds in verse 5, with all that you say, I will do. She is faithful to her mother-in-law, including times when it seems as though her life is put at risk. She's faithful to pursue marriage within the family and so continue the name of Elimelech. And here's something something important about faith in general. So I I just encourage you, if you're writing notes, I mean, definitely write down these main points, but I'm going to give you six facets about faith. You may want to jot these down as well. First, faith is intentional. Ruth has to go to Boaz. Naomi and Ruth make a plan. Faith doesn't just happen. Ruth actually has to go to the Redeemer for something to take place. And in a similar way, our faith in Christ must be intentional. Just because we're around faithful people, just because we're in a a house of worship that proclaims the good news of the gospel, just because you were raised in a godly, gospel-centered church doesn't mean that Christ has applied the work of redemption to your sinful state. That's not how it works. No, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Repent of your sins. Believe in him. We must go to Christ. Faith is intentional. Over and over in the Gospels, we read of Jesus and the disciples calling for sinners to come. Now we know that the gift of faith is a gift of the Spirit. And so the only way that you're going to come is if the Spirit draws you. But nonetheless, the Scripture is clear. You don't, just, you don't get saved by osmosis. Just because the rest of your family is godly and faithful doesn't mean that you are automatically in the kingdom. No. As we'll see later, faith is also very an individual thing. So Ruth models this intentional faith here in the first five verses. She will go. 
So let's keep reading. Verse 6. So she, that's Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went, down, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, let's just stop there. Guys, I'd be pretty surprised too. You know what I'm saying? Like, hard day work, full belly, go to sleep. Man, my feet are kind of cold. Somehow they got out from under my cloak. Turn over, there's a human. And it's a girl. What just happened? <laughs> like, I mean, Boaz has to be terrified. And that leads us to the second point for this morning. Not only do Ruth and Naomi pursue rest, but what we're going to see in this passage, in this scene, is that Boaz promises rest. Boaz promises rest. All throughout the story of Ruth, we have every indication that Boaz is a righteous man. He's a godly man. He's, he fears the Lord. He does the right thing. Now, he's been put in a very weird situation, but let's see what he does. As Ruth takes her place and Boaz finishes work, he ate, drank, fell asleep. He probably was away from the other workers as the owner of the field, so he probably was sleeping in his own private area around the grain. Oh, that's another thing too. Uh, if I was a nefarious, wicked person uh, who wanted some grain, but didn't want to work for it, I'd just wait till the guys who did it went to sleep and steal some grain. So oftentimes during the harvest season, the workers would sleep next to the grain to protect it from being stolen. So that's what Boaz is doing. That's why he's asleep on the ground next to the grain. So he's probably away from other workers, sleeping in his own private area, and here's Ruth appearing before him in the middle of the night. So here's another point about faith, another facet to faith. Number two, faith is vulnerable. Faith is vulnerable. Ruth has seen Boaz's kindness all throughout the last few weeks during the barley harvest, but has put herself at great risk for her to abandon all protection and place herself in Boaz's care. Faith for Ruth in this instance required her to expose herself in a sense before Boaz. And as Christians, our faith is no different when we place our faith in Jesus. We must come to Christ with no guard up. We come to Christ fully entrusting ourselves to his care, right? We, we don't go to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, you can have like this part of my life and this part of my life and this part of my life, but I'm keeping these seven things. Can I still be called a follower of Jesus? No. Because I haven't placed my faith in him. I've placed my faith in me and then what I decide to do with parts of my life. Faith is vulnerable. Now, sometimes we entrust ourselves to someone. We are vulnerable before someone. We expose our weaknesses to someone who take advantage of us. There are perhaps a few of you in the room who've experienced this. You were vulnerable to somebody. You gave yourself in a certain way to somebody and they took advantage of it. They spurned that vulnerability. Or maybe someone in your life who has a kind of power and authority over you that abused that power and did harm to you. I mean, I told you what happens usually in threshing floors in the time of the judges. For a woman to go in the middle of the night and put herself before a man is a great risky thing to do if we don't know that that man is righteous. 
And perhaps some of you have been taken advantage of. Perhaps some of you have been abused. Perhaps some of you have endured a kind of trauma because somebody who was an authority over you took advantage of it. Many of the women at this time would have been taken advantage of by drunk workers. Two quick things on this point that I hope you know. First, as clearly as I can say this, because I know, I don't know personally, but I know from counsel and conversation, Jesus will never take advantage of you. He will never abuse his authority in your life. And he will never overtake you and overpower you to lead you to harm. And second, if that kind of trauma is a part of your story, the people of God are people to trust who want to walk alongside you and bring you to the one who you really need to be with, the one who can actually bring healing and restoration, who can actually teach you and give you his Holy Spirit so that you might learn to live again. And his name's Jesus. So please, just as a little aside in this sermon, if you're resonating with what I'm talking about and you, you agree and you say, maybe that's part of my experience, I need you to hear that you're not alone and that we want to help you. And so, Raisha is here, I'm here, your leaders are here, you will be heard, you'll be believed, and we want you to talk to somebody. I need you to to hear that because although that is a very real risk, the good news of this story is, like Christ, Boaz is somebody in whom we can have total confidence. He is a righteous man. He's a godly man. So let's keep reading and see how this rest is promised in the midst of an awkward situation. Look at verse 8. I'll read that again. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Pause. Most scholars will say that this phrase right here is a marriage proposal. This is what's happening tonight at the threshing floor. Ruth is saying to Boaz, you're a kinsman redeemer. You have the opportunity, you have the responsibility to become my husband. Not because of anything to do with attractiveness, not to do with anything because of maybe a relationship that's developed over the last six to eight weeks, because your family is a family under a covenant. And to be faithful to the covenant we will be husband and wife. Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz is just minding in his own business, fast asleep after a hard day's work, got a little startled, realized his feet were cold from being out of his blanket, goes to readjust and, okay, I'm having a conversation with a woman right now. So Ruth identifies herself. And this marriage proposal, let me just reiterate, it's not based on physical beauty. 
It's not based on sensuality. Although those things may have been there, that's not the bedrock of what this proposal is about. It's based on covenant faithfulness and kindness to a family. So girls especially, this story is not a recipe to how to find Mr. Right. Like, don't go break into somebody's house and go sleep on the floor and say, I'm I'm here. You seem like a good guy. Don't do that. It's not a story for how to find a spouse other than to say, this you can take to the bank and take with you as you pursue a spouse. Any relationship that leads towards marriage should be fundamentally based on a commitment to the Lord and his commandments more than anything else. So if I'm going to pursue a girl, guys, or if I'm going to pursue a guy, girls, and the fundamental thing that's causing this pursuit is because she's cute, probably not a very stable foundation, right? And vice versa. Girls, if I'm pursuing a guy and I want to date a guy, or I want him to be my boyfriend, and the fundamental thing that's causing this is physical attraction or some kind of like spark, Sparks fade, but the word of God stands forever and his commands stand forever. So Boaz responds by encouraging Ruth for her greater kindness. He knows that she could have bolted from Naomi and any family obligation to go marry a rich young man and do her own thing. She could have had whatever she wanted in Bethlehem because she's known as a worthy woman. She's developed a good reputation, but she has stayed faithful and she's coming to a kinsman redeemer for her needs and for the needs of Naomi. Heritage and ethnicity are not the factors here for whether or not Ruth is a worthy woman. So your pedigree, your family, your heritage, where you're from is not the root cause of whether or not you're a trustworthy person or a faithful person or a good person. Faithfulness and righteousness is the key. So this leads to two more facets of faith for us to see. So third, if you're still taking notes, third, faith is intimate. Faith is intimate. This is just between Boaz and Ruth right here in the middle of the night. It's a private matter. And and assuredly, there is some romantic tension in this scene, right? The middle of the night, guy and a girl, marriage proposal, continual use of the words lie or lie down throughout this chapter. But that's not to muddy this scene with inappropriateness or to somehow make this scene dirty. It's not. It's to make a connection for us. Like a committed couple longing together for their wedding day, enjoying one another in the meantime, but looking forward to that greater union when they'll be husband and wife, Christians ought to feel a deeply personal sense of longing and tension in the fact that Christ who loves them has promised to return and bring them to a wedding feast. And that that union is going to happen And that union is something that the intimacy of marriage only symbolizes and points to as a sign. Marriage between a husband and wife is not the thing. Christ and his bride is the thing. Marriage is a shadow of that thing. 
And yet we feel great intimacy in a marriage. We feel great intimacy in a husband and wife or a man and a woman longing to be married. And in the same way, we ought to feel that kind of deeply personal, intimate connection with Jesus. Not to romanticize or make make our relationship with Jesus inappropriate, but that same kind of tension and intimate connection should be there. Fourth, faith is grounded on covenant promises. Faith is grounded on covenant promises. Faith isn't just a subjective feeling. Because here's the deal. All of us know this. If you claim to be a Christian, all of us have woken up one morning and you don't feel like following Jesus that day. So what then? If my faith is based on my feelings, well, my feelings are fickle. My feelings are weak. My feelings are easily distracted. And if my faith is rooted in my feelings, it's not going to last. So faith is not subjective. It's grounded in covenant promises. It's rooted in God's clear word to his people. When we come to Christ in faith, we're not saying, I feel like this is a really good idea. We're saying, Christ, you have made promises to those who come before you in faith. Jesus, you have promised to deliver sinners, to cleanse them from their sin, to wash them white as snow. So I am, I am asking, I am committing myself to you so that you might be faithful to your word. That's the ground of our faith. The commitment of God uh, to his people through the work of Christ. All right, back to the text. Verses 11 through 13, we read very quickly, shows us that Boaz's commitment to redeem Ruth is here. He's made the promise. He will be her covering. He will marry her. He will give her rest. He mentions that there's someone with a closer relation who takes precedent, something that Ruth didn't seem to know, but he promises to settle the matter in the morning. So then a fifth facet of faith. Faith is effective. Faith is effective. When we place our faith in God, when we believe in Christ, he always keeps his word. He always saves. He always is faithful. Faith in Christ never ultimately disappoints us. Now, faithfulness to Jesus in this life may lead you to disappointment in this life. That's for sure. Because you're going to have to say no to things that seem really good in order to say yes to what is most holy and most godly and most faithful to Jesus. You will pray and pray and pray that God will do A because you think it's best, but B happens. Faithfulness to Jesus in this life will lead to disappointment, but faith in Jesus never ultimately disappoints. And when you get to be before God, when you see him face to face, we will know with supreme clarity that all of the things that God did in our life that we did not agree with in the moment will make total sense. And we will wonder at his wisdom. We'll wonder at his sovereignty. We'll worship from his providence. Faith in Christ is never misplaced. Boaz tells Ruth to stay the night and sleep. And you might think that's a little inappropriate. That's a little weird. Well, hey, it's really dangerous outside. It's midnight. 
it would be extremely dangerous for Ruth to go out along in the middle of the, alone in the middle of the night. Boaz is not just her redeemer, he's her protector. And so the next morning, Ruth and Naomi get just a taste of what's to come here in the end. So thirdly and finally, main points, number three, Ruth and Naomi preview rest. Look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but settle the matter today. Ruth gets up early while it's still dark and prepares to leave. Boaz tells the men who were also in the threshing floor at the time not to tell that Ruth was there. Now, here's what that indicates to, to most scholars reading this. Boaz, as a righteous man, probably had a rule that said women are not permitted at this threshing floor. I know what goes on in these other threshing floors. I know the kind of carousing and debauchery that takes place. It won't happen here. So we will work hard, we will eat well, we will dine well together, but the women are not permitted because we won't invite that kind of wickedness here. So he wakes up in the morning and tells the men, let it not be known that the woman was here. That's not why she's here. She's not here for wickedness. She's not here for unrighteousness. He then measures out six measures of barley. Now, it just says measures. It doesn't give us a, an actual uh, unit, but most people probably think it's a sia, which converts, get this, Ruth is a, a baller. Boaz basically put like 85 pounds of grain on her back. And then she just trucked home like a boss. Like, man, we're going to eat good now. Like 85 pounds of grain. He helped, it, he helped her get it on, carried it on her back, returned to her mother-in-law. And Ruth returns to Naomi with all that grain, explains the events of the night, and then says, he said to me, literally, you must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. Now, what's that remind us of? Naomi came back to Bethlehem and said, the Lord, the Almighty, has emptied me. But now, here she is and seeing so many ways how God is blessing her to fullness and overflowing abundance. 85 pounds of grain, unbelievable amount. Now Ruth and Naomi wait for Boaz to redeem her. Sixth and final facet of faith for us. Faith involves waiting. Faith involves waiting. There's a tension between Ruth 3 and Ruth 4 next week that we're supposed to feel. We leave Ruth 3 waiting on pins and needles. Will Boaz do what he said he will do? Is he actually going to redeem her? Is the closer redeemer going to redeem her? What's going to happen next? We must wait. The promise of redemption, the promise of rest was given. And now in the 85 pounds of grain, the, the promise of that rest is being previewed. The fruits of that redemption are being enjoyed in part. But Ruth and Naomi must wait for its fullness. Now, I'm not a huge, huge fan of saying that there's symbolic meaning in every number in Scripture. Uh, there are 
instances in which numbers have symbolic value. And oftentimes, numbers like 7 or 10 or 3, these are important numbers, 100, 12, right? One of those numbers of importance is 6. And 6 symbolically usually represents incompleteness. So think Genesis chapter 1. The labor of God took place in the first six days, but creation was not complete until what? The seventh, when God rested. So what do we have here? Boaz gives Ruth six measures of barley and says, wait for me to settle the matter in the morning. Boaz is promising Ruth real rest. And it's cluing us in to a kind of rest that comes to those who get to enjoy the fruit of someone else's labor. Someone else completed the work. Boaz completed the work and gave her six measures of barley. And Ruth and Naomi get to enjoy this. But what they will really enjoy is the rest that he brings. So what comes next for them? The same thing that comes next for all of us who put our faith in Jesus, who for six hours hanged on a cross. And on the first day of the week, rose from the dead, offering rest and redemption to all who would come, who labor and heavy laden, and he will give them rest. Jesus calls for us to come. So my hope my prayer for all of you is that you would go to him and find rest. Go to him in faith and you will not be disappointed. Go to him in faith intentionally, vulnerably. Experience the intimacy of faith. Experience the effectiveness of faith. Wait for him. Let's do that together. Let's pray. God in heaven, I'm, I'm thankful for these Students, I'm thankful for these leaders and I'm thankful for you and the rest that you offer sinners who don't deserve it. Like a foreigner coming in as a stranger and alien, finding rest, we too might find rest for our weary souls through Christ. So Lord, I pray that the conversations around tables and in rooms for just the next couple of minutes will be fruitful, that you would receive great glory and that you would do a work among your people. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.